You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, our usual reminders about our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Give us a follow there at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast, particularly on Instagram and Twitter. We want to keep those followers going up. Uh, we're getting close to 1,000 on both, so please make sure you uh, not only follow us, but tell a friend and have them follow us as well if they want to learn about the show and keep up with what's going on. Don't forget about our YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Go to youtube.com slash C, as in Charlie, slash Hazard Ground Podcast, where you can just type in Hazard Ground Podcast in the search bar. You'll find our YouTube channel and subscribe there as well. A continual reminder about our promotion with Amazon, go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we'll donate that right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast. I certainly want to hear what you guys think about the show as well. You can always send us an email, producer at hazardground.com, and let us know what you like, what you don't like. We love hearing feedback, and we try to take the time to respond to everybody. So if you guys write us, we definitely want to try to get back to you. If for whatever reason we don't get back to you, it may have gone to our spam folder. So ping us again, and we'll certainly take the time to have that conversation. Love to hear from you guys and what guests you want to hear from, what stories that we haven't told that you'd like to hear told as well. So certainly keep the communication flowing in both directions, and we love hearing from you guys. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start with this week's episode. And joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a retired Army captain. She spent six total years in the United States Army. And of the 265,000 women who served in Vietnam, only about 10,000 actually got to go to Vietnam and serve in combat. She is one of them. She deployed to Vietnam in 1968-1969 and served in two different hospitals, one in Vung Tau, the other in Play Coup. There is a book and personal memoir detailing her story, and she is also the founder of the Vietnam Women's Memorial Foundation, formerly the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project. She is Diane Evans, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Diane, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Uh, Amazing that we sort of found you. This is a, a story that I'm so curious telling because... So many people forget, you know, of of everybody who went over to Vietnam. You don't think that there were a lot of females there, and those stories aren't really told. And so, uh, you know, we hear about women during World War II and what they had to do, but the idea that you literally were in country in Vietnam is fascinating to me, especially given how many, uh, what you must have seen in those hospitals in Vietnam. So uh, take me back to the beginning for you, though. Uh, how and why did you end up in the Army? How and why did I end up in the Army? Well, that's a good good start. I was growing up on a dairy farm in Minnesota, and, you know, during the Vietnam era, um, there were draft deferments, which meant if you were in college, you might not have to go to Vietnam because you were deferred. So farm boys around me who wanted to be farmers like my brothers were getting drafted. And my oldest brother joined voluntarily, this was the 60s, Vietnam era, and he joined the 101st Airborne. Then my second brother, older than me, was drafted, and my parents were devastated because that meant probably one thing, Vietnam. 
but he went to the DMZ in Korea. So then number three is me, and I'm now studying, I'm in college studying nursing, and my mom was a nurse, she was my role model, and I came home from uh, school, nursing school, one weekend, and told my parents that I wanted to go to Vietnam. That if my brothers had to serve, and my 4-H buddies, and the farm boys all around me, and by now three of them had been killed in Vietnam, that if, if as, as a nurse, that I wanted to go to Vietnam and do my part as well. My dad, as you can imagine, any father sending a daughter off to war, or a son, for that matter, he just pounded his fist on the kitchen table on the farm and walked out and went down to the barn to take care of the cows. He was very upset. My mother, as a nurse, she understood so long story short, I graduate from nursing school in 1967. At, at that time, a basic training was six weeks for Army nurses at Brook Army Medical Center. I went the fall of 67. And uh, when I finished um, that, after six weeks, I was assigned to Fort Lee, Virginia at Kenner Army Hospital. And while there for about eight months, eight or nine months, I was assigned to a orthopedic unit and got my preliminary taste of what it was like to care for soldiers who had been wounded in war. It helped prepare me a little bit, but nothing prepares you for war, mm -hmm. but war itself. I think most veterans, male or female, would say that. You know, we have training. We go through training, thankfully, and hopefully that training can help us, but Nothing trains us like the war zone itself. I'm curious at the time, Diane, when you said, hey, I want to go and serve in Vietnam, when you got to your duty station, how many women were there? Like how many females signed up at this point in time? You know, I have no idea because I, I, I knew so little. Like you said, when you did my introduction, you were so correct. People didn't think of women in Vietnam. And of course... Um, we know that women served during World War II. We, we basically have known that, well, there must be nurses, right? Uh, when there's wounded soldiers, there's got to be nurses there. But I, I've always said, you know, we, we worked kind of behind the scenes or behind the cameras. Cameras were rarely there, like portraying nurses doing their caring for the wounded. It was intrusive, basically. And I speak of Vietnam we were definitely behind the cameras, but and we were in the combat theater for sure, but cameras weren't rolling on what we were doing in our hospitals. Uh, I remember the the six o'clock news, for example, Vietnam first what they called the first television war, because journalists went to Vietnam and filmed everything, everything that they saw on the battlefield and elsewhere, and those images came back to the United States. But those images rarely, if ever, included women. So back home, people weren't seeing women serving in a variety of roles in Vietnam, whether they were nurses or in the Women's Army Corps, or the Navy, or the Air Force. There was a little bit of all of us there. So the imagery wasn't of women getting rocketed and mortared. Uh, in at Pleiku, when I was assigned up there, it was early 1969. The 4th Infantry Division was being hit very hard. We were getting mass casualties frequently, but not only that, we're getting our hospital is being rocketed and mortared. And shortly before I got there, there were patients in their hospital beds who were killed. 
at the 71st Evacuation Hospital. Uh, in the hospital, due, due to um, enemy attacks, it was very unsafe. That was never portrayed back home, maybe because the war was already so unpopular. Um, and the American people were protesting and so against mm-hmm. the war. And unfortunately, it also turned against us. So when we came home, women, we don't really look like combat veterans or soldiers, do we? And the image of a soldier is always of a man. So we came home and just kind of assimilated back into society and got on with our lives. And we weren't looked upon as Vietnam veterans. Right. And so, Yeah. Well, let's let's back up. I, I, we're going to get to all that. Obviously, I mean, it's a big part of uh, the, the story in and of itself. Um, you, you said you're at Fort Lee at the hospital there. Uh, so from there, how quickly do you get to Vietnam? So then I get my orders. I, I talked to the chief nurse and reiterated that I joined because I wanted to go to Vietnam. So please send me. I mean, not everybody was begging to go to Vietnam, right? No, <laughs> no nobody was begging. I don't think, Diane, nobody was begging to go. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Mark. So I got my orders and I was, I left the end of July to have a few days at home. I only had two or three mm-hmm. days at home on the farm in, in Minnesota so I'm on. I go to Oakland Air Base to get on a. I think it was a Pan American. I flew a you know a, a, a commercial regular flight, um, not a military plane. And on that plane, I remember the pilot saying something like, "Well, there's 247 on board, and four of you, and four females, four nurses were on that plane with, uh, you know, over 200 GIs." So we land in Vietnam, I think, about August 1st in, in the heat of summer. And, you know. Now, you had mentioned that both of your brothers uh, ended up in the military. You said one went to the DMZ in Korea, the other one went to Vietnam. Were you there concurrently with them or no? No. Uh, yes, my brother was serving about the same time I was. My oldest brother was now uh, out. He was discharged. He had an injury, so he, he couldn't jump out of airplanes anymore. But now he's out of the service. But uh, my brother, who was drafted, he's in the service about the same time I was. And interestingly, Mark, I think this is interesting for your listeners. Both my brothers were in the military. When they found out that I had joined, they were furious. They said really? they did not want they did not want their sister in the military because they told me they had seen how women were treated. They didn't like what they saw in the military or how military women were treated. Now they were enlisted men and they saw, um, they felt that women were disrespected. And, um, I found that, um, I, I was very naive about all of this. My aunt had served in world war two and she used the GI bill after her service coming home from world war two. And she went on to get her doctorate degree at Columbia and taught college the rest of her life. And she she had not spoken to me a lot about her actual service. So um, I wasn't quite sure what my brothers were talking about. Um, uh, They instilled some fear, uh, you know, like, how am I going to be treated as a woman? But, you know, remember that when I went in the service in the 60s, less than 1% of the total military force were women. And there were men who didn't believe that women belonged in what they saw back then as their role. 
And it was a competition, I suppose, if you will. And of course, today women are fully integrated and women today are still having, you know, and this is another, you know, maybe later in the show, we can talk about how far women have come sure, in the yeah. military today. So you land in Vietnam in the beginning of August of 1968. I mean, obviously, as a nurse, you kind of know what your mission is. But did you get a sense, based off of your time at Fort Lee and dealing with soldiers returning from war who were wounded, what you were walking into, particularly from a medical standpoint? No. No, I didn't. Not until we were actually there. You know, at Fort Lee, the the, the boys, or I call them boys, you know, a Marine colonel got mad at me and he said, they were not boys, they were men. I said, fine, you can call them men, I call them boys. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they were my boys. So um, at Fort Lee, Virginia, they're all cleaned up. They're all in blue pajamas. And, you know, I, I'm not seeing the mud and blood of Vietnam, and I'm not seeing them you know, coming in on stretchers and you know, or litters, you know, all bloody and, you know, uh, horrific uh, scenarios. So, but what those young men, young men did teach me at Fort Lee was a, a small little things. Like I was such a young nurse and I didn't know, you know, anything about what these young boys had been through. And I remember it was in the middle, I was on a night shift and I went up to a, a patient to give him his meds and I had to wake him. So I just went up and I, I touched him on the shoulder and I went, touched him on his shoulder and he was, it was an orthopedic unit. So now he's in a trapeze and he's got pulleys and he's got casts and, and he, 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 I startle him. So he's a, you know, he was in combat. You can't startle a combat soldier. And I startled him, and he woke up, and he just hit me with his cast. He was a cast on his arm. His arm just went out, and I kind of went flying. And he 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 woke up, and then everybody else on the unit is now awake because one person wakes up, and they're all awake because they're all hearing a noise, and they have this startle reflex, like they're jumping into action. And he, he just was so I – could, I, I could have killed you for that. And because he woke up and realized it was me, you know, stateside, given wanting to give him his medicine. And I said, I'm so sorry. He said, don't do it. Don't ever do that again. So then I learned to just go to the foot of the bed, shake their foot to kind of wake them up. Mm-hmm. And then and then another night I dropped a metal bedpan on a child's floor. Every single patient in that unit was awake and screaming at me. Oh, man. Of course, I was 21. <laughs> I, was, I was 21. They were 19, 20. You know, after a while, we all got used to each other, and then they started to laugh at me, and they said, well, you're going to Vietnam. Now you're, you're, you're getting a little taste of it. But anyway, the injuries, you know, they were all cleaned up and stitched, and, and the guys were recovering. But Vietnam, now I think the thing that was overwhelming to me was the sheer numbers um, of casualties. And my first unit at, at Vung Tau, there were 65 beds in that unit, 65 beds. And it was, they were all waiting for surgery because they were getting their DPCs delayed primary closure. Vietnam was very dirty and bacteria, and we had to load them up with antibiotics. The medics, my wonderful medics, dressed the wounds, irrigated the wounds with normal saline, and got the wounds clean so that in three days the surgeons could stitch them up and hopefully recover so they could go back to their units. Do you remember your first case, your first wounded that came in in Vietnam? 
Well, the first, the first, my first case was sixty was sixty five wounded. I mean, I, I walked into my unit, and there were sixty five young men. Every bed was full, and I got you know the orders from my head nurse, uh, Captain Manuel Zenega, a male nurse, because we had you know male nurses probably. A fourth to one third of the female of the nursing population was were male nurses, and um, he told me what my job was for the day, and it was starting IVs and giving meds and helping the medics do the dressing changes, and um, that kind of thing. So, but I do remember my first death, okay. and I was called I was called over to the intensive care unit. Um, I was pulled over there one evening. Because um, when we knew a patient was going to die, we didn't want him to be alone. So hopefully we could pull someone to just stay with him um, so he wasn't alone. And um, so I, I, you know, came to his bedside and I looked at him and I could hardly see him because he was just sheathed and dressings and bandages. And um, I was told probably he would pass away during the night. But when I held his hand and said, you know, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm going to be with you um, through the evening, and I'm not leaving you. And I said, if you can hear me, please squeeze my hand. And he did. So I knew that he heard me. He hadn't gone into a coma. Um, he was close to shock and from all his blood loss. And um, But he, he squeezed my hand. So I told him, I said, I know you can hear me. You've, you've squeezed my hand. You've held my hand. I'm going to hold you through the night. I'm not going to leave you. And But he, he couldn't talk back. So then I thought, I'm just going to have to talk to him. I'm just going to keep talking, talking, talking. So I just had to, I, you know, what I did then was I told him about, well, I'm going to tell you about life on the farm. And I told him all about myself and growing up and that I had a horse. And I just kept talking to him until his hand went limp. And I thought maybe he can still hear me. So I just kept telling him stories. And just to keep, you know, so he, he would feel like he wasn't alone. And then when his hand went limp and there was no longer a pulse, and and I just, I felt this sense of um, he was dying, but I was also dying with him. I was dying too. I was dying for him and with him because it was so sad. And I, I wanted it to be his mother or his family to be at his bedside, not me. And I thought, I know he's, He's gone. He's dead, but his mother doesn't know this yet. And then his family would, you know, get the telegram or the visit. And all I could think about was his family. And that was a part of me went with him. Um, a piece of my heart, you know, followed him. To, mm-hmm. And I just never could forget him. So. Do you remember his name? No, no, I don't, we, we, and his name would be on the wall. 
And when I went to the dedication in 1982, I looked up at the plates for 68 and 69, and they were the tallest and the widest, because after the two years, we lost the most numbers of our, our men and women. And um, I couldn't find his name. Uh, it, we didn't write down names, right? I, most of the nurses I've talked to can't remember names because there were so there were thousands of literally I cared for thousands of casualties went through my wards in that one year, and we didn't write names down, and we didn't. I I only remembered one name, and that was Eddie Lee Evans. From Why'd you remember that office. name? Because he was my patient at Von Tau, and. Um, we, I was caring for him, and his wounds were minor, which meant that we were going to do the DPC, and as soon as we took out his stitches, he was going back to his unit. So he was just, just there for recovery, and then, you know, that's what we that's what we do. We get them, we stabilize them, and if they can recover, they go back to their units, or if they get the million-dollar loan, they go home. But Eddie Lee Evanson, Eddie was from Minnesota, and I was from Minnesota, so we struck up this you know, bond as he was uh, recovering. And he asked me before he left the unit if I would write to him out in the field. And he was just such a great kid. Well, he wasn't a kid. At the time, he was 21, which is what I was. We were both 21. And I I kind of made the mistake, I guess, I, I, if you can call it that to 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 write to him and um then I was transferred up to Pleiku and I got this manila envelope from some colonel and I looked at this and I said, what's this about and I opened it up and there were some of my letters in that envelope and the commanding officer said that we were, I regret to tell you that Eddie was killed oh, um uh, and his name is on the wall. So then I guess that's the regret that most of us nurses, like, don't get close to the patients. We, we don't want to, once they leave our unit, we want to know they're okay, but we don't want to know if they get killed because it's just so hard. So this was one patient, the one name I could remember, and I've never forgotten it. So when I was able to see Eddie's name on the wall and I touched it, that was like touching all of my patients. He He was... He was the one I could remember. So in remembering him, I could remember all of them who were nameless, but they weren't faceless. I remember their faces. I could I could see them. Um, so, yeah. You know, you had mentioned earlier that uh, when that first patient had died, part of you have died. How often did that happen? I mean, how, how many times can you emotionally die while you're doing this this awful job in Vietnam? I think what happens what happened is that we became so um, we we couldn't have emotions we couldn't be crying or falling apart. Let's put it that way. We had to be strong. We had to go into the next patient. We we couldn't be um, um, we couldn't have these strong feelings about. Um, our own personal feelings. We had to forget about ourselves and measure up that that patient was more important than we were or how we felt about it. So we just had to be strong and we had to be brave. And 
we, we, all of the above. And, and just to, by the time I got to play cool, I'm now a seasoned combat nurse, right? I can start an IV any, on anybody uh, in the dark. I did one night. Um, I had one medic with mass casualties. These came in by a Chinook helicopter. And I was told to, to open up the spare ward. So I knew this was trouble. So my medic and I, one medic and me, and the ward master, God bless him, he was a World War II vet, uh, Korean medic. And then he was assigned as a ward master in so he was like, what, in his 40s or 50s? And he was amazing. He got the ward set up, got all the IV bottles set up. Everything was ready to go. Um, I had my tourniquet, and I had supplies. And then the hospital associate were being rocketed. Now there's incoming artillery. It's not, it's not outgoing. I, can know, I now know the difference. Is it incoming or outgoing? And now we hear the rocket, but we, we hear the thud. And this one medic and me, all the lights are out. We had blackout at night for safety. He and so the medic had a flashlight. So the, the patients start coming in in litters, one after another, after another. There were twenty-eight of them, twenty-eight. And because uh, the medic went around, he counted them and he said, "Hey, Lieutenant, there's twenty-eight of them." And I looked around and I said to my medic, "Well, this is odd. These boys don't have any holes in them." They were dehydrated. They were near shock. Their veins were collapsed. We had no idea what had happened. Why did they come in this late? They must have been stranded out there, and the choppers couldn't get in to get them out. They were near death, many of them. And so the doctor came in and said, give, give this much ringer's lactate, this fast. And he left, and he just gave us the order, so... I started Ringer's lactate on 28 dehydrated soldiers that night. Every one of them had collapsed veins, and they were dirty. So now you're scrubbing the vein and trying to get an IV in a collapsed vein. Well, that's not easy, but we did it. We got every IV started in every one of those guys. Wow. And, um, and that, but still, they weren't talking, and we asked one of them, who seemed a little bit loose, what happened out there? What, what happened? But nobody was talking, and we, and then the mass casualties started coming in on the other units, surgical casualties from the ER, who now are going through the OR, and now being put into post-op. And then four hours later, I'm back on my post-op unit and taking care of the wounded who have um, horrific wounds, and we've got them on ventilators. So what I'm trying to say here, I guess, Mark, is because you ask about how we felt. So I think we quit feeling. We just could we had to, we had to compartmentalize and put all that away and not, not feel um, our own emotions because we had work to do. And so we just went to the next and the next and the next. And we did all the things that a good nurse needs to do with the skills that she, she or he has to, to save their lives and forget about how we're actually feeling about it. 13 years later, and I think it's now called post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, we start, to say the least. When we start feeling, so when we start feeling, feeling and thinking, that's, that's delayed, that's delayed stuff. That's the delayed emotion that comes years later. I asked you about your first day there. Do you remember your worst day there? My worst day? Well, that's an interesting question. It, 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 you probably would think by this, what I just shared with you, that the worst day was when all these casualties came in right. and it was just me, me and one medic. 
But somehow I didn't look at it as the worst because we saved every one of those guys' lives. We saved them all. And how could that be a worse day, even though it, it could have been... It could have been terrifying, but neither one of us were terrified. The medic, the medic had been a field medic. He he was now he'd been out in the field about eight months, and they let him come in. Let him come in to be a hospital medic for the rest of his. So we were we knew what we were doing. We just got through it. But I think the worst day was the night I was back and I was on my I was head nurse in the post operative surgical unit. That means we got all the patients that were coming from the operating room now. Right out of the end, we had many of those uh, guys were on ventilators. So it was it was late at night, and um, we're being rocketed, and it's really close. I mean, it is like on top of us. In fact, it was on top of us. They were trying to hit the radar, which was right on the next to the hospital, and they were trying to hit the radar, and of course they were falling short. Well, maybe they were actually trying to hit the hospital. They probably were. Forget about the Geneva Convention, right? Mm-hmm. So, thou shalt not hit hospitals. So, um, the medic and I, we just went into our mode. We, uh, the guys who could, you didn't have to tell them, get under your bed. This, they, those guys knew what to do. They were on the floor. Now they're ripping out their IV and their bloodlines. We had extensions on our intravenous fluid, extensions for the tubing, so that if they ever did have, have to hit the floor, the, the tubing would be long enough from the IV so they wouldn't be ripping them out. But, you know, some of them did get ripped out. Bloodlines were getting ripped out. So I took care of all of the, the patients who could not get under their beds, which were mattresses on top of them. We grabbed the mattresses from the beds that were now empty and threw them on top of the patients who were in ventilators and those who just, you know, could not um, get themselves under a bed. So, okay, so I'm the only female nurse in this unit right now, and I have four medics. And what are we doing? We're doing everything we can to save these guys' lives by protecting them first. Then the medics, I told them, get under the beds. The medic, We've done our job. But there was a little girl who was screaming. She was a Montagnard girl because we were at Pleiku, and the Montagnards were the indigenous natives to Vietnam who were mountain people, mountain yards, I think that refers to mountain, but they were our allies and they were helping the United States government, you know, with, you know, with um, all kinds of stuff. So this little girl had been, her, her village had been bombed with napalm. She had circumferential wounds, burns around her entire body. You could not touch her anywhere except her hands had not been burned. She is screaming because of the the shelling. And it reminded her of when her village was bombed and her parents were killed and she had nobody and they bring her into the hot the medics brought her into the hospital for us to take care of. She's probably three or four years old. She is terrified. And now the shelling terrified so she's screaming. She scream she's screaming so now you can think about, you know, we've, we're being shelled. A little girl is screaming and out of terror, and she's in a crib. And when I've taken care of all the GIs, I go over to her. I cannot put her under the crib. She, You can't touch her. So I just took her hand, and I held it, and I crawled under the crib because everybody else had been taken care of. And I held her hand, and she screamed herself to death. 
she, this, I swear, this little girl screamed herself to death. So that is one of my worst moments in Vietnam because she was just a child and she was so afraid and she was so in pain. And it's just, it's like the movie Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go to Viet- I wouldn't go to Vietnam movies. And then when it came out, I thought maybe I should, I should just go to, maybe I should go. I went alone, big mistake. And I, afterwards, somebody asked me, well, what was that movie like? And I said, it was just like Vietnam. It was just one big hallucination. Because to me, Apocalypse Now was like, this is just hallucinating. And I said, that was Vietnam. It was so surreal. It was just like a hallucination. It couldn't possibly be real. And how can you tell anybody about this? So when I came home from Vietnam, I never, I didn't talk about this. I told no one about this little girl, an innocent and and how she died. And, you know, it takes years to be able to open up and talk about something. Just the fact that I'm telling you this right now, Mark, this 50 years ago, it's been over 50 years since I came home from Vietnam. And I've just started talking about this. And probably because of, I've written the book now. And once you put something in writing and you write a memoir, it, it, it opens up your heart and your ability, I think, to be able to talk about it a little more. Sure. Uh, so as the experience in these hospitals goes on, and again, you were at two of them um, in Vung Tau and Pleiku, was there a difference between one hospital and another? Was one worse than the other? There's, there are big differences. There, and it, everyone in Vietnam has a story based on where they, it's just like for the men. If right. were, were you in I-Corps or were you in Florida? You know, if you were in the South in the Delta and the Rice Paddies, your war was very different than when you were the Marines up on the DMZ. And so depending on where you were in Vietnam, the terrain, the temperature, the nature of the warfare even was very different. And that's the way it was with hospitals, too. Now, when I was in Vietnam, there were about 27, 26 that I know of U.S. military hospitals. And there were aid stations, and there were evacuation hospitals and surgical hospitals, and then there was the must units, which is medical units, self-containable, transportables, which maybe people think more of like a mash unit. And and they they didn't last very long, those must units, because they were, for lack of better words here, they were like a like a bubble. And so when they were rocketed or shelled, they would deflate. Well, what good is it then? So so it wasn't really a good hospital for, you know, guerrilla warfare or the kind of, you know, things that were happening in South Vietnam. So they were heavily, heavily sandbagged and they were hot. And, you know, in Vietnam, it was the temperature 105 degrees. So there's fans blowing and they have to have air conditioning and those are be like an oven. And those were transportable, but then they started building uh, structures and like my hospital at Pleiku was a wooden structure and there was no glass, obviously in the windows, there were screens or there were boards, but um, yes, depending on where you were in Vietnam and how quickly the casualties came to you in Vung Tau, that was a 400 bed evacuation hospital. And the majority of casualties were coming from in country from other hospitals that were doing the stabilization and then shipping the, the, casualties out to hospitals like uh, the 36th Evac at Vung Tau. And, and they were coming in, what I used to say, they came in blue pajamas rather than coming in, in their fatigues and just out of the field. However, uh, the 36th Evacuation Hospital would also get casualties directly from the field as well. 
And and then everybody thought, oh, the 36-year back is so safe. It's by the ocean. It's a seaside R&R center there. But after I left in April of 69, the 36 evacuation hospital was rocketed and mortared. So no hospital was safe, no matter where you were. But one thing about the um, the Delta, um, we would get these poor guys in, and they'd been in the rice paddies. You know, they're wet, right? And they would have the most horrible jungle rot, the boots. You'd take off their boots, and their feet were just like unbelievable. And there was leeches, and the leeches were horrible. And they would crawl all the way up and get in places you do not want to have leeches. Those poor guys. Mm-hmm. And then we had, I know, and then we had buffalo, water buffalo. One of my patients at the 36, I said, what happened to you? Because I was treating his wound and a water buffalo had attacked him and gouged out the entire left side of his buttocks. He had no buttocks left. And it's like, I come to Vietnam and I think I'm going to take care of patients with bullet holes and then the sea snakes. So we had patients who had been bitten by sea snakes who were poisonous. So it's like, I thought I came to Vietnam to take care of casualties who, you know, weaponry. But there was, and at Pleiku, I, I think I'm going kind of fast here. At Pleiku, it was in the jungle. And we had a couple of patients who had been attacked by tigers. And their names are on the wall because the tiger had killed them. And I always wondered, you know, that was such a horrible, every war is horrible, but what do they tell the parents? We regret to inform you that your son was killed by a tiger. I mean, that's, you send your son and your daughter off to war and then you, they die these terrible deaths by, um, Things you can ima- can't imagine they would die of, and we did have a lot of snake bite deaths up at Pleiku, um, and we were so desperate to save them. A pilot volunteered to uh, fly to Thailand to get the antivenom, and um, he was on his way back with the antivenom when my patient died. And you know, not being able to save these guys. Um, that was the hardest part, Mark, and I think you asked this question, but I kind of skirted around it, like the worst patient or the worst thing. It was, we worried as nurses that our biggest fear, my personal biggest fear, was that someone would die on my watch, and then it would be my fault. If someone died, well, I would take care it's my fault. I, I think we were so young that we carried this huge burden like, it's our fault. It, and these chopper pilots, oh, my God, these young 19, 20, 21-year-old dust-off helicopter pilots, they would go out in the worst kind of weather and the worst conditions being shot at, and they would lower that chopper to save those guys. And they would do anything to rescue or, you know, they didn't think about themselves. And... um and of course, so the helicopter pilots and the medics and the doctors and all of us in that medical profession, I think we all carried home this burden that if we lost someone, it was our fault. And I know someone asked me after I'd been back from Vietnam and um, I was being interviewed for why I was building the memorial to honor women. And this person said, well, nurses wouldn't feel, we hear about all this guilt, like the soldiers have all this guilt. 
and they're going to help for get help for PTSD, and they feel guilty because they kill people. Well, would nurse it, do nurse it? You don't feel any guilt, do you? And I just looked at him, the person interviewing me, and I, I was incredulous. I said, "Sure." You think we don't feel guilt? He said, "Well, why would you feel guilty?" So, I think veterans come home from war with different layers of of guilt for different reasons. Absolutely. When do you get notification that your time in Vietnam is up? So I knew after one year that this is the irony of Vietnam and that war. Just when we got good at what we were doing, whether you're a combat soldier, yeah, it's time or to go. Medic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, after a year, we, we're we are now we are so good at what we're doing. We're so skilled. And then we get to go home. The year is over. And some, we used to say, re-up. Are you going to re-up? Um, and I had seriously considered about staying another year because I felt I belonged there. In fact, in fact, I felt I belonged there a lot more than I belonged at home. We weren't being welcomed at home, that's for sure. But I decided I needed to go home and decide if I wanted to go back because I, I wasn't feeling well. I was losing weight. I had a low-grade fever. I was I was obviously exhausted, weren't we all? So um, I got my D-Rose, my orders, that I was ready to go, and it was about the uh, last of July, 1st of August. I think it was August 1st. And I, it was hard for me to leave because I had a patient on a ventilator, and we had moved his bed close to my desk as head nurse. We put the we put the the most seriously ill patients closest to the nurse's desk so we could watch them the most carefully and observing them at just a glance. And um this when you're on a ventilator, as you know, Mark, if anyone knows, you're dependent on everyone around you. You can't you can't get up and walk away from that ventilator. And, you know, he had a tracheostomy, had a tracheotomy, and he also had chest tubes, he had a chest injury, and uh, we were, we thought we would lose him at any minute, and so he couldn't speak, so I, we were communicating, I, I had a piece of paper and a pen there for him to write on, and he could tell me things, and so I had to go tell him that I was leaving and I didn't want to tell him that because I knew it would upset him. But I said, I told him that it was my time to go home and that I would miss him. And I said, and you're going to be okay. Of course, we didn't know he was going to be okay. But he panicked. He absolutely panicked. And he started, when you're on a ventilator, you're, you have a lot of anxiety. And so we medicate to help with that anxiety. But he was, I thought he was just going to pull out his trach and his tubes and... And I, he motioned he wanted a piece of paper, and he said, please don't go, please don't leave me. And that was my last day in Vietnam. I have a patient saying to me, please don't leave me. Now, talk about guilt. Talk about, uh, and, and I didn't want to leave him. And I was leaving him now to the new people. And I, I never, and I don't know his name, but I've never forgotten him because that was like, Probably the most one of the most traumatic moments in my Vietnam experience was a patient telling me, "Please don't leave me." I felt like I was abandoning him, and I was. I was abandoning him. There was no doubt. And he had grown to trust me, and we had we had developed this bond, and there's no stronger bond on earth 
been a bond that's forged in the heat of war. And and now I was I left him. And I don't know if he survived. I I don't know if he survived or if his name is on the wall. And um so that was traumatic. <sighs> a lot of emotion there, Diane. I mean just, you know, I'd love to be able to try to unpack the PTSD angle of this and you know, where you are. And, and again, you know, you had mentioned the book that you wrote, and certainly there, there's a lot of it in there. The book, Healing Wounds, A Vietnam War Combat Nurse's Ten-Year Fight to Win Women a Place of Honor in Washington, D.C. So it's a, a fantastic read. But I'm just kind of curious, how much of this do you still deal with, still after all these years? You know, I say in the book, in the preface, why did it take me 50 years to write this book? Because I, I, I was terrified to write the book. For 10 years, I fought, I battled, I fought this battle in Washington, D.C. to honor the women who had served during the Vietnam era. And why did it take 10 years? Because there were a handful of men who were against it. Why did we win? Because there were a lot more men that got behind it. And, and we won. We overcame uh, all the, you know, opposition. And, and that's in the book. But I was terrified to write my book because then I was really, I felt like, why, why write a memoir unless it's not honest? It, it has to be honest. And so if, if I'm honest, I have to tell, I have to remember and tell all these, you know, and I had letters. I wrote letters home and I had a diary and I, I had, I went into all of that and then I started having the nightmares all over again and I thought, I don't know if I can do this. So I waited and waited until I realized, you know, I'm 73. I I don't have the rest of my life to write this book. Maybe my life is over tomorrow. So I I thought about, um, and I said this in the book, how brave I was in Vietnam. When you think about it, and all the women, how brave we became because we quit thinking about ourselves and measured up to care of our patients. If I could be that brave in Vietnam, I can be brave now because nobody is going to throw things at me anymore. Like coming back from Vietnam, we wondered, well, who, when the shoe going to drop, when somebody else going to say that, well, would you go to Vietnam in the first place for, or say something humiliating or derogatory about our service? It was so painful. And I thought, I don't want to go through that again. But I decided it was time to write my book, and then it really did become therapy. I could actually write honestly about what I did and how I felt and that it was okay. The world wasn't going to come to an end. Nobody was going to, you know, throw rocks at me anymore or tell me I was unworthy or that I shouldn't have gone to Vietnam in the first. Nobody shamed me or made me feel guilty. And I just thought, I just have to write it the way it was and let the, let the chips fall as they may, let the wolves howl if they, you know, but I, I told it the way it was. My book is is as honest as I could possibly make it because it had to be or I couldn't write it. I, I couldn't make this stuff up. And I just, you know, and I realized everything I had tried so hard to forget, I actually remembered. It all came back. One memory led to another memory. It all came back. All that stuff I had packed away in that, I guess my therapist called it, a compartment. You compartmentalize. And she said, as we age, the, the walls to those compartments in our brain, if you want to be literal, start to thin. And pretty soon, the memories start to push through those compartments, and they're just out there in 
in your face and you can't deny them any longer. And so, and now I feel like I don't have to deny them any longer. They, they are me. They're, they're part of me. And I'm now honoring those memories. And when we honor our soldiers and all those who've worn the uniform when they come home, when, when we honor them and remember them, it's, um, it's so critical to their healing and their recovery. Um, so we were so dishonored when we came back from Vietnam that it, it um, galvanized us into, um, I think, putting up this armor. And I guess I let my armor down, and mm-hmm. that's okay. That's okay now. I, yeah. That sort of leads to what I wanted to ask you next. You know, one of the, I guess, disadvantages of being a female who goes to Vietnam is that no one knows that you went to Vietnam because you're a female. We didn't expect them to be there. Did that turn out to be advantageous in the sense that when all the men were coming home, they were looked at sideways and obviously spat upon and all the negative stuff that came with it, did that same sort of thing happen to you or did you sort of skip by it because you were a female and people assumed that you probably weren't there? Oh, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Mark. That's exactly right. Us women, we didn't look like Vietnam vets. And the guys, when they came home, if, if they uh, what, they come home from Vietnam and say they would go to college, like so many other guys have told me, but they wore their field jacket on campus, or they still had their military haircut, whatever, they, or they were wearing their jungle boots. If they had anything that looked like they'd been in the military, they set themselves up to, to be either beat up or scorned or humiliated. And so they had to try to hide the fact by just letting their hair go long and not wearing anything that, you know, trying to look fit in with the hippies or whatever, or what the, you know, norm was at the time for the 60s and 70s. As women... We didn't look like Vietnam vets, and no, it was very easy to hide, especially if we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't want to talk about it, and I told my husband not to tell anybody I was there. And we didn't, like the VFW, women weren't allowed into the VFW until like 1978. So, and I didn't feel like maybe I'd be welcome in a veterans organization, so I didn't join until the 80s. So I didn't go like walk into a VFW or American Legion club and then sit around and talk with fellow veterans like the men could do. They at least could go sit at the bar and have a beer and talk to each other. They had a place. The right. men had a place to go if they chose and if they felt comfortable in that place. A lot of Vietnam vets told me they didn't feel comfortable because some of the World War II vets didn't accept them. But women, we didn't have that. So we just went off on our own and tried to cope in the best way we could, You know, getting on with our lives, maybe, maybe getting married, maybe having children, maybe going back to school. Did it bother you the way the men were treated? Oh, terribly. Oh, that's why I was so angry. And it was, I, I projected it. It was always about the men because when I came home, I kept telling people I, I couldn't believe how the men were treated, that they were treated so horribly. I had just seen how they had suffered and how they had died. And I, was, I, I became so angry as how could they treat these soldiers like that? How could they treat them? And so I was always saying them. Or, you know, the men who had served. I never said we. And in fact, um, when uh, I got started with the Vietnam Women's Memorial, and now people want to interview me, and this young reporter, he was like in his 20s, he said, well, uh, how come, don't you consider yourself a veteran? You keep saying, you're talking about all these other veterans, but you never say 
I or me or we. And I said, well, I never thought about it that way. I, I guess I just was angry at the way the men were treated. And then, of course, I started to think about the women. And that happened when they dedicated the statue of the three servicemen at the wall because I thought the wall was perfect. It was perfect. It, it included the men and women who died. Then when I put the statue up of the three men, I mean, I I thought, well, that's fine. If that's what the, the men want, they can, you know, they're putting up a statue. But then I, then I thought, well, that's when I realized then people will see the imagery. They'll see men, but they won't think about the women. So if there's going to be a statue honoring, looking like men, like real men in their fatigues, um, that we need to see a statue that looks like women, so people will remember the women. So the statue of the three men made the Vietnam Veterans Memorial incomplete, in my opinion. <laughs> Not everyone agreed. I thought then there needed to be a statue to women, so people could see them, that see that these women, too, were in combat. These women, too, served in the combat zone, and also to embrace all those women who had served around the world because they stepped up to support our country when they didn't have to. We weren't conscripted. We weren't drafted. We were all volunteers. We didn't have to go. So that's pretty darn honorable when you think about the fact that women didn't have to serve, and they still don't. They don't have to, but they still step up. And they, they volunteer to put themselves in harm's way. Thousands of us did that. I wasn't the only one who volunteered for Vietnam. And as a woman... And and I just felt like that was an honorable thing to do, and we needed to recognize that. So the foundation itself, the Vietnam Women's Memorial Foundation, tell me about it and how it got started. Vietnam Women's Memorial Project, and then after the dedication, we changed the name to foundation to kind of more reflect. We finished the project. The project would get that statue dedicated. And then the foundation reflected more our ongoing mission, which was educating people and uh, facilitating research on the women who had served and and providing ceremonies at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial uh, with storytelling and um, women sharing, you know, sharing their stories about their service. Oh. Yeah, an incredible, certainly, foundation, and, and rightly so that these women were memorialized uh, because, as you've stated, you know, women in the military and the progress that they've made, while it has been great since the time that you had a uniform on, it certainly isn't enough. I mean, you know, we're not at a place where women have equal footing. Now, some of that is a, is a numbers game, obviously, because there's just... Only 13% of women make up the military, so they are at a strategic disadvantage when it comes to, you know, promotions and, uh, you know, high-level positions because there's not as many of them. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be equal representation at the top of the military. So how do you gauge how far women have come in the military organization? I think it's historical. We just look at the history and... So we look, okay, when did the Army Nurse Corps start, like turn of the century, like 1901, and there's World War One, and what do we need? Nurses, Civil War, everything, war, you know, anything that's happening in humanity needs caretakers, women, nurses, male nurses, physicians, you know, the gamut. We need to take care of the wounded and the sick and the ill. So women have always been there to do what they can, whether they wear the uniform or not. So now there's World War One, and all these women go off overseas. Uh, most of them died uh, of the flu more than of wounds. Then World War Two, and massive 
uh, numbers of women are now joining to, to contribute in some way. And then there's Korea, and then there's Vietnam. So the way I like to look at it is every single generation of women have opened doors for the next generation of women, uh, especially um, in, in, during wartime, because women pro- World War II... Well, and women proved themselves. Women proved that they could do this. And then Korea and then Vietnam, we proved what we could do. Now look at the women today. In Vietnam, there were no female helicopter pilots. There were no female pilots. And I tried to do the research. I wanted to find out how many women physicians were in Vietnam, and I found one. And she was a black woman. She was Dr. Clotilde Bowman, uh, African-American woman, in Vietnam, and she was a physician. And when I found her, I asked her how many women doctors were in Vietnam, and she said, to my knowledge, two. Now look today, and of course no pilots, but look today, uh, women serving, uh, and I want to make something, uh, an interesting um, note here, Mark, about the word soldier and the word warrior. So in Vietnam, I came home and no one ever called me a soldier, and certainly no one called me a warrior. And I used to wonder, was I a soldier in Vietnam, or was I just a nurse? What was I? And was I a warrior? And today it's like the nurses and women who are serving, they're warriors, and they're also soldiers, if they're in the Army. Um, you know, I'm talking Army here. But um, even labels you know, were different, as how we were referenced. And I am so proud when I see the women serving post-Vietnam and I see how they become helicopter pilots and jet fighter pilots and the things that they have proven that they can do, that they're capable, that they're smart, that they're brave, and that they can serve in the same way as our, our brother soldiers. And, and we saw that in World War II with our black soldiers and black nurses in World War II being segregated. They, they, it was thought that no white, no white um, wounded soldier would want a black nurse caring for him. How tragic is that? And we had black nurses in Vietnam, and we we were. I asked. I, I actually asked a black nurse friend of mine. I said, "Were you treated in when you were in Vietnam? Were you treated any differently than we were?" She said, "No, absolutely not." She said, "No, I was valued. I was welcomed." Now. You know, everyone had a different experience, but um, I think we we opened doors and we earned respect and uh, we garnered that trust based on our skills and um, our ability to work hard and improve ourselves and and rise up to the standards. And when I see women today become generals, when I was in the 60s, women couldn't become generals. (laughs) And the first female general was an army nurse. And um, but now look, how many do we have? Seventy-five or eighty female generals in the army, something like that. And one hundred and eighty or one hundred eighty-one thousand total women in the the force of our military today. So I just look with pride at what women are doing today, and we still have a long ways to go. But think about where we we have come from. Look at our history. And one of the things that has it really improved? And that's the sexual assaults and rapes yes. in the military. Yes. Yeah. And I, it took me, a, it took a lot of courage for me to talk about that in my own book when I was assaulted and I was terrified. And, um, so, 
you know, but the predators that are in the military today are the predators that are outside. The, anything you have in the military today, you have outside the military. It's, you know, it's going to, it's just going to be that way. But there has to be absolute zero tolerance, zero tolerance anywhere. But especially the military, when men and women are thrown together in situations where they have to rely on each other and uh, for the good of the, the mission and the force. And then for this kind of thing to still be happening is devastating. It's a, it, to men too who are sexually assaulted because it works. It's it's both. And um, well, I think the big thing is is that we're doing a better job at sort of checking ourselves. I mean, in reality, the only organization that truly checks the military is the military, right? It's all done internally. You know, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. politicians get involved and they regulate budgets and sizes and you know. You know, they, they push us towards X conflict and Y conflict, but in, internally, the only people who truly monitor our organization are in our organization. So from that end, in sort of starting to quell the sexual assault and sexual harassment that was extremely pervasive in our military for a very long time, uh, we have done a better job at checking ourselves. Still got a long way to go, not not patting ourselves on the back by any stretch of the imagination, but we've started to take the first necessary steps and when you see yeah. two-star generals sitting through the same training that privates are sitting through and literally in the same room, that's called accountability yeah. from the highest level down to the lowest. Yeah, I agree. I agree, Mark. We have a long ways to go, but yes. it, there's a great improvement. And women are becoming stronger today in, in the sense that, and what I mean by that is they are more willing to step up and admit it. We were terrified back in the 60s to say to, to tell a senior officer, what had happened to us because there wasn't as much accountability and we would be the ones who would be blamed and or transferred or lose the promotion and the perpetrator would go scot-free. But that is what has changed today, that it is a reportable offense and it should be taken up the flagpole, the chain of command and something should be done about it. Um, and I think women are becoming more vocal and more and stronger in their willingness to um, address it. And it has to start with a woman because she has to defend herself and report it and, and make people, make people accountable. Yeah. And we're not here in this position without people like you, Diane. I mean, that's, that's a fact, you know, it, it, it took trailblazers like yourself to not only just enter the military, but to give a platform and give people a, a position to understand that women are equally as capable in everything that they do in the military as their male counterparts. And for that, you know, that's a thank you from me to you. I don't have the military I have today without people like you who took those important steps and those important strides along the way to make our organization better. Well, thank you, Mark. And that was the whole point of building the Vietnam Memorial. And that's why I stuck with it for 10 years, because I felt like the country needs to know that the, the value of women's contribution during the Vietnam War. And of course, my focus was Vietnam because there was a statue of the three men. I wanted a statue there of women to complete the circle of healing and to complete the memorial to show visibly in a portrayal that women were also there and and that we were there side by side with our brother soldiers in, in the combat theater and that forever and eternity we wanted to stand beside them on our site. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial is for Vietnam veterans. Well, if women are Vietnam veterans, we may be female Vietnam veterans, but if that was men's place, 
It was also our place. And if our place was in Vietnam with those soldiers' names on the wall, then our place was also on the National Mall with our brother veterans. And when I could get that message across, then all these men came out of the woodwork. I say the good guys, the wounded soldiers, the the soldiers, the, the officers who came in to visit the wounded men who they cared about deeply. And they came up and stood by our side and helped us accomplish the mission. And that was dedicate this memorial. And it took, you know, it took $5 million and it took two bills in Congress and it, it took fighting the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. But when, when we could get past the contingent of men who were in opposition and absolutely did not want the addition of a statue because of a woman, because like this one guy said, it would demolish a statue of a woman at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial would demolish the integrity of the, of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And I thought, what did he just say? Did he use the word demolish? Well, yes, he did. It's in written testimony. And it's like, well, we didn't demolish anything when we went to Vietnam. So what is he talking about? And it was so discouraging because these are the only things I was hearing at the beginning. Like I was hearing from all the men who were against it. Then when we we became more um, visible through the media and um, news stories, and we started talking about what, what the opposition was and where it was coming from, all of a sudden now we have thousands of soldiers stepping up and saying, if it wasn't for these women, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be alive. You know, these women deserve this recognition. And so it was the men who got behind us who helped us push this through and achieve uh, the, the vision, which was a, a monument that portrays women um, serving their nation and being a part of the war. It worked. We succeeded. We won. And now we have, as a result of that, because the World War II women started saying, well, what about us? We don't have a memorial in the Korean. And so they started their own. And they have the beautiful women's memorial at Arlington. The entrance to Arlington Cemetery is the, they call it the women's memorial. It's a little confusing because ours is Vietnam women's. But Women in Military Service to America, WIMSA. Uh, two or three years after um, our statue was dedicated, their memorial was dedicated to honor all women who have ever served war and peace, past, present, future. Their memorial is very inclusive, and it's very different than ours. There, it's, a, it's a physical building. You visit it. There's uh, stories about women there. There's, there's archives and artifacts, and the memorial itself is beautiful. So it's it's all baby steps, Mark. We we start out as women in the military, and the baby steps. We're now generals, and we're now flying jet planes, and we now have memorials to women. So it's it just it takes steps, and and we're getting there slowly but surely. Yeah, I mean, and it's beautifully said, and you certainly can hear you know the energy in your voice when you talk about this because it uh it was needed you know and and it's something you should be very proud of uh, again shouldn't have taken you that long it shouldn't have taken that much work to get this to be done but uh you know without people who have that passion for uh what they believe in you know it, we don't have these memorials but we also don't have the organization we have today as far as the military is concerned and again you know that's uh, due to people like you and and other females who have worked so tirelessly over the past couple of decades to uh, to make sure that there's equal footing and that our organization is equally representing uh, the service of men and women. So again, for that, we certainly thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. I would like to say, 
it takes leadership. So think of it this way. I was this lonely little lieutenant in Vietnam, and then I, I, I went back in the service. After I got out, I went back in because I missed it. And I became a captain, and then I got pregnant and then got out, but you know, almost seven years in the Army. And so here I'm this lowly little junior officer, right? And then I'm starting this battle to honor women. And I, th- I think to myself, well, where are the generals? Where, where are the colonels? Where are the women? Where are the women colonels? And why aren't they doing this for us? Why? Where's the leadership here? Why am I doing this? So I contact them, and I get pushback. They didn't want to have any part of it because they didn't know who I was. I'm probably just this little nothing from Minnesota. I fly by night. Who was I? And I understand that. You know, I, I understand that. They didn't want to get involved with somebody who was going to fail. So I, I, I received no after no after no. Well, finally, this lieutenant colonel, she was in World War II. She was in Korea, and she was in Vietnam. Lieutenant Colonel Evangeline Jameson. And she was a chief nurse in Vietnam. She contacted me and said she wanted to help. Oh, my gosh. She was fabulous. And she gave all this money. So now I had some leadership in the senior, more senior officers. So so now I have hope. Okay. So then, so, so then the point I'm getting at here is we need leadership. We need leadership from the top to take care of the junior officers and the enlisted men and women. And and where are they when we need them? So Admiral Crow, Admiral Crow and General Colin Powell and General Shalakashvili, when they heard about what we were doing, and I contacted all, I wrote letters. I wrote a letter to Admiral Crow. He was chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I wrote him a letter and I said, we need some help here. I contacted General Colin Powell. I talked to General Shalakashvili. And when we got that leadership behind us, it was phenomenal, and because they they know people, right? They can make things happen, mm-hmm. and they can make things move, and they talk to the right people. Pretty soon, the pieces all started coming together, and then I, I, I felt this sense of, I felt abandoned, Mark, in Vietnam by leadership. I felt abandoned. Where was the leadership? It was LBJ and Nixon who just wanted to, you know, keep on, you know, they had blood on their hands. Let's put it this way: there was no the, the, the leadership in Washington D.C. was lying to us, and they betrayed us when we came home. Because not only was the country not standing up for us, the administration wasn't standing up for us. And so I felt betrayed by my country. And now I was beginning to feel that betrayal again while I was trying to build a memorial. Because where are they now? And but gradually they came out of the woodwork. And so I, I want to say. Thank you, and I want to appreciate, and if there's any generals or admirals listening to this series that you do, I hope they listen to you, Mark. I, I hope so, too. <laughs> I hope they're, they're listening, because they should be, because we are the people that they're over, we are the people who are serving their militaries and making this country safe. They should be listening to us very carefully, and um, but they need to come out of the woodwork and stand up for us. In every way possible, whether it's you know the you know eliminating sexual abuse in the military and eliminating this you know sense of um, not honoring you know equal equal work that's being done by men and women in the military, and um, but when there's leadership, good leadership and uh, healthy leadership, it just makes our country and makes our military stronger. Yeah. I, I think that's 
I just wanted to add that, Mark. No, yeah, and, and, and leadership right now is what we're thirsting for in multiple different places and multiple different parts of government and the military. And, you know, it's unfortunate. You would think that the people in power would prioritize leadership over a lot of other things. And to this point, they have not. And that's disappointing to say the least. But, uh, you know, again, there, there's still people like you out there uh, who who want to be leaders and want to blaze a trail and want to make things better for the, for the greater good and the organizations that they're a part of. And so, you know, I, I can say w- with a good amount of certainty that we have a better military today because of someone like you and the work that you've done. And not only with the foundation, but just within the everyday ranks uh, that we have. And and I loved hearing every minute of your story. There, there's probably so much more that we couldn't get into, but certainly the book is there uh, for everybody to to read. And, and there's a lot more stories in the book that absolutely will, will sort of uh, tug at your heartstrings, but at the same time, open your eyes to a lot of different things you probably didn't know. And so, you know, I am appreciative of everything that you've been able to tell us. Once again, Healing Wounds, a Vietnam War combat nurse's 10-year fight to win women a place of honor in Washington, D.C. Diane Evans, thank you so, so much for your time and your honesty, and certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for your service, and thank you for your program. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.